Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you all about strange things that have happened in history. I'm Amelia Edwards and with me as ever is my co-host Barnaby King. Ahoy! Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm alright apart from the heat, but you know... We just got to get used to that in this big old inferno world we live in now. That is true. Now, today's story is going to be a bit of a short one, but a fun one. So I thought I'd start off with an episode Oh, excellent. Okay. What's this episode about? I thought, let's take advantage of the fact that we are doing a podcast format and talk about music. Ah, butt music. Today it's not butt music, but it is similar. Uh, <laughs> just on the subject of butt music, we actually went to the Welcome Collection in London on Saturday. We did. And uh, we saw a copy of the Hieronymus Bosch Garden of Earthly Delights, but unfortunately it didn't have the side of the triptych that had the butt music. The butt music was cropped out. Yes, and you know that I poured over that painting mm-hmm. looking for the butt music um and saw a lot of stuff that you, you don't really want to no <laughs> <laughs> oh bosh yeah. if you haven't seen a painting by bosh knowingly go look at them they're weird yeah you should have a look at the garden of earthly delights i mean there is something fascinating about it mm. but at the same time also a little bit gross and sweaty yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's very orgiastic <laughs> yeah Anyway, taking us away from butt music for a moment, I want to talk about a piece of music that's called The Entrance of the Gladiators. Ooh, okay. Now, this was composed by a Czech composer. I'm going to get his name pronunciation wrong because right. I can't pronounce Czech. Okay. Uh, well, you just did. <laughs> <laughs> you pronounced Czech. Yes, get I, it? I get it. Yes. You get it? I get it, yes. Laugh. Sorry. <laughs> I did. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So this is a composer, I think his name is Julius Fujik. Okay. And he was a prolific composer. Um, he was a military bandmaster and oh. all his compositions, or most of his compositions, were to do with the military. So they were things like right. marches. So it, it, this entrance of the gladiators is meant to be like a big stirring thing for soldiers or something? It really is, okay. yes. Okay. So, incidentally, he wrote over 400 marches, polkas, and waltzes. Right. Or polkas? Polkas. Um, <laughs> and his pieces are still played as patriotic music in Czechia. Oh, okay. So, on the 17th of October, 1897, he wrote this piece of music. This is one of his most famous musical pieces. Right. Uh, he was stationed as the military bandmaster of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Sarajevo. Oh, wow. Okay. And this is supposed to be a really impressive piece. He called it originally Grande Marche Chromatique uh, to reflect the chromatical scales that get used all the way through. Oh, okay. It demonstrates the state of the art in playing technology and the construction of brass instruments, which allowed fast and even chromatic gears in all instruments and positions. Right. I'm expecting something a little bit avant-garde here now, because you, you like the chromatic scale, generally, I associate that with sort of something more experimental or surrealist, maybe. I guess we could say this is maybe experimental in terms of band marches. Right. Like... 
I have not heard another band march like it. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, when you hear marching band things, you know, it's usually very umpa. Yeah. I'm thinking um, Blackadder goes forth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this, you know, it's it's trying to show off exactly what the orchestra can do. Okay. Um, and he changed the name because he read the Polish author, again, I'm going to get this wrong, mm-hmm. Henryk Sienkiewicz's... N- 1895 novel Quo Vadis, okay, which is set in um, Rome. It's set in Rome at the time of, oh gosh, Nero. Ah, right, yes. And it's our, um, our, our boy that we've talked about. Our boy, the Nero, probably it's, the worst of the Julio Claudians. Yeah, it's a romantic novel, by the way. It, I read the synopsis. It sounds trash. It's right. all about a Roman who falls in love with a Christian barbarian <laughs> and gradually converts to Christianity himself, and it's set against the backdrop of the Great Fire of Rome. I'm trying to work out what quo vadis means. I can't I can't think of the um the verb for it. Oh, that's because it's only part of a sentence that's at the end of the story. Oh right, Give okay. Give me a second. It's because it's supposed to be about the historical events of St. Peter's martyrdom. Right. And he says, Quo Vardis Domine. Okay. So, uh, no, I still don't know the verb. It means, where are you going? Ah, where are you going, master? Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Um- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm now thinking of it as, um, uh, oh God, what is it? The, uh, where do you go to my lovely song? <laughs> <laughs> but where do you go to my Domine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um so yeah, he was influenced by this and he was like, let's name it after Rome. Ah, We're gonna right. call it the entrance of the gladiators. Okay. Um now the problem is that yeah. six years after he creates this piece of music, okay. um it gets taken over by an American publisher called Carl Fisher. Right. And he rearranges it for American wind bands. Right. Or he gets the Canadian com- composer Louis-Philippe Larando to rearrange it for wind bands under the title Thunder and Blazers. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it becomes- You gotta appeal to the American audience. They want something big, <laughs> something exciting. They don't want gladiators. Actually, they would want gladiators, wouldn't they? No, we don't want gladiators. We want something like those Marvel movies everyone's talking about. Something yeah, Thunder big. and Blazers does sound like Thor Love and Thunder. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, and at this point, it became a screamer march. Whoa, okay. Now, what a screamer is, is it's used in circuses... Right. And it's to rile up the audience to get them excited for something. Okay. There are a number of these. Okay. This is possibly the most famous screamer march in existence. Okay. Let's hear it. Right. That's the clown music. It's the clown music. I used this the other week. You the, did. I even got it saved, I think, down as clown music. Yeah, but it is entrance of the gladiators. <laughs> it's to show off how amazing a marching band can be. So, what? Okay, okay, right. So how much did this change from the original? Did it, That original version, is that meant to be the gladiators? And it... It's now clown music. Look, I've got the um, Marie- the United States Marine Band playing it in the late nineties. Oh if you want to hear yes. an actual an actual sure. band version. 
it hasn't changed much. Yeah, okay, so that's practically identical. Yeah. <laughs> and that's meant to be the, the march or the entrance. The, the entrance of the, the entrance gladiators. Of the gladiators. <laughs> yes. Wow, it really sort of goes against the, you know... Uh, the the apocryphal we are about to die salute you yeah sort of the serious nature of gladiators yeah i can only imagine i I don't know if you ever watched it i i watched it as a sort of guilty pleasure because it truly is dreadful but there was a show called spartacus blood and sand i think the first series was oh yeah no i did not watch that i I think my mom did (laughs) well okay it's deeply sexual yes no i think i remember watching (laughs) part of this but i'm just trying to picture they do it like there's all these very gruff shirtless muscular men trying to be you know it's really all serious and intimidating by roman empresses yeah yeah and then you actually get to the Colosseum or or something like that and that music plays yes (laughs) it's just wow that is that is not the right tone at all spartacus is just like i am not fighting anyone until we get some better music i want something sort of like heavy metal or something like that just to like a sort of uh, a wwe entrance music yeah. sort of thing but nope you got bloody clown music the question i have is- oh we're about to stab each other <laughs> so silly is this music inherently silly or do we just think it's inherently silly because of clown music like i agree that it's not appropriate for gladiator entrances no. but with a marching band in the early 1900s could it be something more serious i don't think so i think definitely it's not helped by the fact that we now consider it to be the clown music but i think the the sort of the rapid yeah bit of it is just it's inherently a little bit silly and a little bit like fun yeah like may, may, yeah maybe not silly because we, maybe i'm just thinking of clowns there but it's it's fun it's not like a it's not scary yeah. no it's this it's a, isn't this isn't how you take your troops into battle but yeah. it might be how you entertain people back home yeah it's a sort of light-hearted jig like i'm imagining if you want it as marching music, like everyone's marching along quite normally and then like the melody kicks in and everyone's suddenly going at like three <laughs> times the normal speed. Like, I, I think it is inherently funny and not serious. Like, yeah, <laughs> but I could totally see, yeah, it being associated with something other than clowns if you're thinking like a music hall thing. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I, I, I think that I think that he he is swinging a miss with the name there. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was worth talking about, though, just because it's one of my favourite things. Yeah, fair enough. The March of the Gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite iterations of it is uh, in The Simpsons, mm. when Homer's going to go to clown college and he's got it in his head and he sort of hallucinates his family as clowns. <laughs> Amazing. Mike. Yes, homie? That's it. You people have stood in my way long enough. I'm going to clown college. I don't think any of us expected him to say that. And now for our main segment. <laughs> and now for our feature presentation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, in recent weeks, we've talked a lot about colonization. Yeah, that's true. And we talked a lot about oppression as a result. Yep. And, you know, 
I think it's worth talking about these things always, but it can be a bit of a downer after a while. <laughs> yeah, okay. Wow. That's just, you're just putting me down for like having two weeks of uh, a story about a bunch of people disappearing, possibly dying of starvation and... Yeah, cheers. Yeah, I mean, you could have told me before I before I actually, you know, we recorded these episodes. No, I'm just saying because um, you and I have recently been to Amsterdam, yes, and we, we went have. around a bunch of museums. Yes, we did. And one thing that the Dutch museums are doing particularly well at the moment, as well as the Welcome Center, actually, mm-hmm. is talking about you know the history of how museums have come to be. Yeah, the um, the Rijksmuseum Museum had a really good thing where you've got like your normal information in like black wall plaques mm. and then the white wall plaques had like extra information about how it how you know the museum got a hold of these pieces or yeah. what these people did like how heavily involved in the slave trade they were i think that's quite good because it's like i, I think those sorts of things obviously it's very important but Sometimes you want to just switch off that part and enjoy some nice paintings. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of how I'm feeling at the moment. Like, maybe Mm. our audience wants to switch off and just enjoy some history that's not necessarily about the oppression of, you know, people of colour. Yeah, fair enough. So let's talk about the oppression of the Belgians. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) My forefathers. But this is is good, because this time we don't have to feel uncomfortable about it, because (laughs) you're the one being oppressed. (laughs) Yeah, I am outraged. Yep, exactly. How dare you cancel me like this? (laughs) So, I want to take you back to the year 1815. Okay. Now, 1815 is a big year for Europe mm-hmm. because Napoleon has finally been defeated at Hooray. the Battle of Waterloo. Oh, brilliant. Hooray! Oh, we can properly celebrate that. Everyone, wave them flags. He's not coming back this time because Hooray. he had come back before. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we exiled him first and then he just sort of came back. Yeah, I think he got exiled again after the Battle of Waterloo, but <laughs> it, it's permanent now. Yeah. Now, here's the issue, though. Napoleon had conquered so much of Europe and the world in general that everything is kind of a bit of a mess now. Yeah, the French Empire was pretty expansive. It was. And I mean, they managed to defeat a lot of, like, there was a lot of French colonialization yeah. as well. Um, the people of Haiti managed to defeat Napoleon all by themselves, which is good on them. Yeah. That's actually how come that was the first, um, like, black owned island in the caribbean oh that's so cool which is very cool and we might need to touch on it later i was on gonna say in october ah yes good idea which is uh black history month yeah thinking um, ahead i yeah. like it yeah um but you know what happens when someone takes over a lot of europe is that we have to have a big old conference and we have to sort it all out yeah fair enough it is traditional it is traditional you you might remember this from your gcse history anyone who's taken gcse history the end of World War One, you get the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. And they carve up all the little bits, and then Hitler gets cross. Yeah. Here, we've got the Congress of Vienna. Ooh, okay. So the Congress of Vienna decides it's time to carve up Napoleon's empire among the victors. We're going to carve up his empire like we're going to carve up this boxed frozen ice cream treat. <laughs> no, this is Vienna, not Viennetta. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> So, here's the deal. Britain had done pretty well for itself during the Napoleonic War. Well, we didn't get taken over. We didn't get taken over, and we did manage to grab some more territories overseas. Hooray! Including the former Dutch Ceylon. 
right. which is now part of Sri Lanka. Ah. And where the, we get the tea. Where we get the tea. And the Cape Colony in South Africa. Right. Okay. Now, you might have noticed, Barnaby, these were not French colonies. No. They were Dutch colonies. Right. So they kind of had to make up for it to the Netherlands, who were a bit peeved. They want them back. Right. And Britain's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Britain's like, oh, I'm terribly sorry. You see, we're becoming powerful now. <laughs> now that Napoleon's defeated, we're going to properly claim everything. Everyone is going to go on the grand tour of Europe and we're all going to steal your artwork as well. Ha <laughs> ha! Absolutely. So pipe down, Netherlands. We're taking your shit. Exactly. So they decide, it's to, we'll make up for it. Yeah. And Britain's really good at making up for stuff by giving away land they don't own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, somewhere Rishi Sunak is apoplectic <laughs> with rage at our portrayal of Britain. I know. But it's not my fault. I didn't realise Britain was going to be involved until I started researching. <laughs> Fair enough. So... As God a- damn it, Britain, keep your sticky fingers out of world history. No, <laughs> we're going to give the Netherlands a new territory, okay. which is Belgium. Ah, right. Okay. Now, this helps everyone because that way France has now lost some of its own kind of personal land that it sort yeah. of had. And there's now a buffer north of France, yeah. so it can't keep expanding again. Yep, makes sense. Excellent. France is never going to become great again. Fantastic. Meanwhile, all the Belgians are like, um, is anyone going to ask us? No. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you may have noticed, or or guessed, immediately, there were problems with what was called the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. Oh. One of these major problems was that there was a massive difference in religion. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Yep. Because... As we found out from going to Amsterdam, the Netherlands was very Protestant. It was hella Protestant. To the extent that they wouldn't let Catholics celebrate in public. Yeah, we went to a really cool museum uh, called the Museum of Our Lord in the Attic. Yeah. Which has a sort of mix of reconstructed and actual, like, what would you say? Not archaeological, but... Yeah, I get architectural. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm saying. No, I don't know either. <laughs> Basically, Basically, it's got a Catholic church in the attic. Yeah. It's very cool. <laughs> it's very cool. And they've done it up to look like how it might have at the correct era. Yeah, exactly. Um, however... Ooh, got away with that one. <laughs> well done. <laughs> however, Belgium was largely Catholic. Mm. Additionally, Belgium had to cover a lot of the Netherlands' national debts. Right. Um, they felt that it was unfair the way that the National Assembly of the United Kingdom of the Netherlands was made up because they made up 61% of the population but only 50% of the National Assembly. Right. They also made up a large portion of the militia but were overwhelmingly led by Dutch officers. Right. And there were four times as many Dutch people as Belgian people employed in the government administration. Yeah, okay. So far, so Scotland. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Additionally, in 1823, there was a linguistic reform that was passed to make Dutch the official language of the Flemish provinces. Oh, right. Yeah, language in Belgium is always a bit of a sticking point. Do you remember, like... 
it must have been like more than a decade ago and now but there was some talk of Belgium splitting into two yep. countries that was back when I was in uni was it yeah ah. because this has medieval roots to it apparently of course of <laughs> yeah. course but yeah there, there was talk about splitting it into the Flemish speaking and French speaking areas like as two separate countries yeah exactly um, so- <laughs> which is that's like Belgium you are small enough as it is yeah but I think that at the time there was also a French-speaking elite in the Flemish part right. of Belgium, like in Russia, how a lot of the Russian elite spoke French and no Russian. Oh, yeah. I think that was also happening in Belgium in the Flemish bits. Yeah. So you had the French-speaking part of Belgium and then you had the French-speaking elite and the Flemish and they all get told, you got to speak Dutch now. And everyone's like, no. <laughs> and whatever no is in Flemish. <laughs> and that's why, to this day, the Flemish speakers kind of resent the French speakers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they are cross. Mm. Peeved, even. Oh, my. Would you go as far to say they are miffed? I'd say they were miffed, oh, yes. Oh, dear. Well, that's quite serious. Yeah. So <laughs> On serious. the mythometer. <laughs> so serious that they start to take inspiration from the French. Okay. So, in July 1830, the French had three glorious days of the July Revolution. Oh, right. Okay. Now, incidentally, this is not the same as the French Revolution. No. And it's also not the same as the revolution that inspired Les Miserables, right. which happened in June 1832. Okay. The French had a lot of revolutions. Yeah, it sounds like probably second only to Russia. Uh, possibly even more. Oh, I, wow. Like, seriously, there's a lot of them. Like, I've mentioned before I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo at the moment. Mm. There's a lot of revolutions in The Count of Monte Cristo, and that's before this. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> God, they're they're ornery people, the French, aren't they? Yeah, they they love revolting. (laughs) So, on the 25th of August, riots broke out on the streets of Brussels. People were going round, breaking shop windows, you know, objecting to all of the oppression from the Dutch. Mm -hmm. Um, And this got worse only when they were swiftly joined by people who were in the opera. What? Yeah, this is called the Night of the Opera or something. Okay. Um, because at the same time, at the Théâtre Royal de la Monnaie in Brussels, uh, there was a special performance given in honour of William I's birthday. Right. And this was uh, a... That's uh, William of Orange, uh, is it? It's not William of Orange. It is a William of Orange, but it's not the one you're thinking about. Right, okay. This is a different William... I don't know why he's William the First because we already had a Dutch William, but I think he was only a prince. Right. Ignore, ignore our William. Okay. Is what right. I'm saying. I, I'll just forget I said anything. There. This is another William. Okay. <laughs> this is an 1830s William. Hey, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> so there was this special performance of La Mouette de Portici, which means the mute girl of Portici, which is a sentimental and patriotic opera set against Massaniello's uprising against the Spanish masters of Naples in the 17th century. Of course. Of course. I know it well. Yeah. So basically, there's an uprising in this opera. This was not necessarily a good idea to do to celebrate a king's birthday. Right. Okay. So... (laughs) Wait. So are you about to say that the theatre goers basically went... Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's all revolt. Yes, they did. Oh, my God. So there was a duet 
called Amour Sacré de la Patrie, which means sacred love of fatherland. Wow. <laughs> um, many audience members immediately left the theatre <laughs> and joined the riots. Wow. Okay. I... <laughs> <laughs> This happens more times than we think. Yeah. Like, people rioting because of ballet or opera actually is a thing. Yeah. It really comes to something where, like, it just gets me really annoyed at all those people, the sort of the reactionaries who are like, oh, my God, television and video game. They're, like, screwing. They're so violent. They're so yeah. violent. They're, they're warping the minds of our youngsters. They're all going to be terribly violent, everything like that. Bloody opera. Yeah. Bloody ballet. Yeah. A duet. A duet! Called The Sacred Love of Fatherland. Yeah. It's nationalism that bloody's doing it here. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. The crowd pours into the streets. They're shouting patriotic slogans. They took possession of government buildings. And they also created a flag for the Bel- Brussels independent movement, which was fastened to a standard with shoelaces during a street fight, which... I love. That's amazing. It's such a shame, though, that the whole thing came tumbling down when the interval occurred and everyone returned to the opera house for their pre-ordered cocktails. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Bloody opera goes. I know, right? <laughs> so, as you might suspect, the Dutch are feeling pretty down in the dumps. <laughs> oh, we lost the territory that was never really ours. <laughs> well, they have lost a lot from the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, that's fair. I think... When, whenever you go to anywhere in the Netherlands, all of the big works of art are all from sort of the 16, 1700s. Mm. The Dutch have peaked. They're on their way down. Damn. Throwing shade at the Dutch. <laughs> um, not really. I'm just saying, you know, like in terms of economy, in terms of having one of the biggest empires yeah. it's all it's it, all it, going you mean it's it's gone downhill at the time not yeah. that that was the best time in the netherlands and it will never be as good again oh no 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 because like frankly the netherlands is lovely it right is now, really lovely they seem pretty happy yeah it is really lovely and i have to say i fell in love with the amsterdam public transport system i know you were gonna say that <laughs> Fun. we love the trams i loved it so much <laughs> not just the trams just everything was just so good and neat and efficient and uh it, yeah I'm, I'm sorry i i need a moment yeah <laughs> that's okay you, you take your moment oh dutch public transport oh yeah <laughs> i'm back okay but you know they're down in the dumps they've got that kind of like England in the 1950s, they've just lost their empire yeah. kind of situation. They kind of got it, but not really. Okay. Um, so, enter a hero. Ooh. This is Jan van Speyk. Ooh. Now, van Speyk was an orphan. He had been born in Amsterdam in 1802 mm-hmm. and raised in one of the apparently incredible orphanages that actually set people <laughs> up. Like, we saw a lot about Dutch orphanages as we well did, when yeah. we were in the Amsterdam Museum. Apparently, they were pretty sa- like they were pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we did see some stuff about modern re-examinations and sort of yeah. some of the ways that these orphanages were patronised by the wealthy and thus the poor were patronised. Yeah, exactly. Ah, do you see what I did there? I do see what you did there. But part of the fact that the wealthy are patronising these establishments is that they seem to have given kids a reasonable education and, mm. you know, brought them up okay. Cool. For the time. Well, you got to get a lot of merchants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, when he was 18, he joined the Navy. 
Okay. And Good solid career for a young man. Oh, yeah. And he served in the Dutch East Indies from 1823 to 1825. During this time, he became known for being really good at killing pirates. Oh, okay. I know. That's not what I expected, but okay, that's cool. Right. Um, He killed pirates along what's called the Banker Strait. Right. And he became known as the Terror of the Bandits. Oh, that's cool. Which is very cool. It was like what sort of level was he at this point? Was he personally like killing these bandits, or was he commanding a ship? Or um, so I think he is personally killing these bandits. He's not commanding a ship yet. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah, he's apparently very fanatical about yeah. you know protecting Holland. Yeah. He loves the Netherlands. <laughs> he sees a pirate and he's just like, let me at him, let me at him. His crew's holding him back. Leave it, Van Speek. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> so, when the Belgian War of Independence broke out, due to what's called in um, a website I looked at, his almost flawless record of pirate murder... <laughs> That's amazing. And his noted hatred of the Belgian independence movement. Wow, okay. Okay, he hated the Belgian independence movement so much. Right. He said that he would rather die than become an infamous Brabander. An infamous what? Brabander. What's a Brabander? Someone from the province of Brabant. Oh, okay. (laughs) I thought it was like, okay, no, fair enough, yeah. Which means Belgium. Yeah. So... He was given command of his own gunship at this point. Excellent. And this was the ZRMS Cannoneer Boot Number Two. Wow, which I think Catchy. means which I think means cannon boats. <laughs> right. Very- it's a gunship. Because <laughs> say I we talked we talked in the last couple of episodes about ships having really bad names, but I feel like at least they didn't basically have a serial number. Yeah, this is cannon boat number two. Yeah. All right, so the task of this gunboat originally was just to kind of sit outside the port of Antwerp Mm -hmm. and inspect the ships that entered and left. Right. Right, basically making sure that no one could take anything to the Belgians. Yeah. However, on the 5th of February, 1831, a gale blew the gunboat into the quay. Oh, okay. And the Belgians who were on the quayside, quickly stormed the ships. Oh, no. And they demanded that he haul down the Dutch flag and that he surrender the ship to them. Oh, damn. He's not going to be happy about this. He was not happy about this. (laughs) They're like, oh, God, that's the guy who just murders pirates for fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, boys, back to shore. (laughs) So, there are two versions of the story. Okay. He either fired a pistol into a barrel of gunpowder in the ship's magazine. Right. Or he threw a lit cigar into the same barrel of gunpowder. Oh, my God. I like the lit cigar better, but largely because it reminds me of that one episode of The Office where uh, Dwight decides to set fire to a bin and is like, today smoking's going to save lives and then chucks a cigarette. (laughs) I'm just imagining, like, (laughs) they're sort of like, ah, we're going to take over your ship. And he's like, mind if I have one last cigar? Yeah. like... Fine, but make it quick. And he just lights it and just inhales deeply and looks at them and is like, hey boys, catch, and then flicks the cigar (laughs) into the gunpowder. According to legend, when they said, you know, 
you've got to surrender. Yeah. He shouted, I'd rather be blown up then. (laughs) (laughs) Then had a quick cigar. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably more likely that he fired a pistol at it. To me, I'm I'm not even sure that would really work, though. Like, firing a pistol at it. Like, maybe? I don't know. There's some gorgeous pictures of this anyway. Mm. So, the number of Belgians that were killed is unknown. Right. It probably numbered in the dozens. Wow, okay. 28 of his crewmen also died. Oh, damn. And he died, obviously. Oh, damn. Um, He had 31 crewmen in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, this is impressive. I'll grant you, you know, blowing up your own ship rather than having go into enemy hands. But, I mean, in the numbers game... In the numbers game, it's not good. In terms of not getting your ship in enemy hands, it's pretty good. Yeah. But also, I have to point out that once again, we have a boat drifting off somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) I wonder how much of history is influenced by boats just drifting into the wrong area. Yeah, I mean, really... (laughs) So, this act makes him into a national hero. Amazing. Because, as I said, the Dutch are feeling pretty sorry for themselves. They want something to make them seem cool and heroic. And they're like, oh, this guy, he blew himself up (laughs) to save us. (laughs) So, eight days after his death, the Dutch government declared that there was going to be a national day of mourning. Oh, damn. And his remains were buried at the Neuerkirk in Amsterdam. I'm surprised there were any remains. I am too. For some reasons that I'm going to explain later as well. Partly that he was blown up and partly that his body seems to have become souvenirs as well. Oh, right. So... Go on, get your bits of Van Speek here. You've actually seen this as well. When we were in the Amsterdam Museum, which I think is called like the hostelry. Yeah. Um... There was a jar mm. which contained allegedly a piece of his rib cage. Excellent. But I've got some questions about how they managed to get this back, how they managed to distinguish his body from anyone else's body. Yeah. So like, I don't know. So I know obviously like our listeners might be hearing this story for the first time. I haven't heard all of this, but I knew some of it yeah. because of going around the Amsterdam Museum. I have to say the painting is one of my favourite things. Oh, yeah, I'm going like, to talk about the paintings. Okay, I'll, I'll leave that for <laughs> yeah. you then. But yeah, they also do indeed have a jar with a blackened rib bone in it. Like a bit of it. A it's bit only of it. Like it's not a whole rib bone. It's inch long, maybe. No, yeah, it's a bit more than that, but yeah, it's not very big at no. all. <laughs> um, and they do say that like, that it's claimed to be a rib bone of Van Speek. They, they, don't, they don't, you know, say this is definitely it. They say this... Yeah. People say it is, but... But granted, like, 28 other people died on that boat. Yeah. And it was an explosion. Yeah. So, I don't know. (laughs) I've just got this horrible image of them just, like, fishing out all these parts out of the water and then carefully reassembling them like a jigsaw or something. What, like they're paleontologists? (laughs) Yeah. Dinosaur back together. Yeah. Maybe. So, in 1833, William I pronounced that as long as the Dutch Navy exists, there will always be a ship named Van Speek to commemorate him. Oh, amazing. Seven ships have now borne his name. Oh, cool. Uh, The current one is the Van Speek F828 of 1994, which is a Carol Dorman class frigate. It is not an impressive looking boat. Oh dear. I will say. Oh dear. It's quite diddy. Ah, that's a shame. It's diddy, but it's got a hell of a lot of explosives on board. Yeah. 
He was also decorated with the Knight's Cross. And there's a national memorial in his honour, which is located at the J.C.J. Van Spake Lighthouse in Egmond and Z. And also in a few areas around. Yes, I would say so. (laughs) And then, of course, the reason why we particularly took an interest in him is that there are now several (laughs) Victorian-era paintings of his ship exploding. Yeah, like the fantastic thing about this was that Many of these paintings were like typical Dutch art of the time, like a lot of portraits or a lot Mm -hmm. of like images of city life and things like that. And then just in amongst them, right at the bottom was just an exploding ship. Yes. And it's just, it's just so weird. Like you've got all these very austere Dutch people in black clothes. Yeah. Who are all just merchants or patrons or something like that. And then suddenly... Big old ship blast. Yeah, I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen an explosion in an oil painting no. before. Like, you know, a, one of those naturalistic style yeah. ones. That is not the only painting of Amazing. his boat exploding. Of course not. <laughs> and then additionally, and listeners should really go look this up because it's very cool. The Rice Museum has got a painting of him contemplating firing the pistol. Amazing. Which is just wonderful because for some reason the way he's going to fire the pistol is he's got his arms crossed. Right. And the pistol is like in his hand. Oh, I see. Like sneaky. So it's like sneaky. He's got his arms crossed. He's standing in front of the barrel of of gunpowder and there are two guys like legging it out the door. It's amazing. Oh shit, he's gonna actually do it! Uh, It's wonderful. Brilliant. So yeah, that is our story of Van Speyk, who's famous for blowing himself up, and thus not really succeeding in preventing the Belgian Revolution, because they did get their independence. Yeah, but he succeeded in being pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4 and suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you could give us a review on your podcast listening device of choice, that would be amazing. Thank you, as ever, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronous, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the pod, except for the March of the Gladiators, <laughs> for which we can only thank Julius Fujik. Okay, and thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and give away countries that don't belong to you. <laughs> Bye! Bye!